Chapter 13 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 13 Love Making on Mars. Following the battle with the airships, the community remained within the city for several days, abandoning the homeward march until they could feel reasonably assured that the ships would not return for to be caught on the open plains with a cavalcade of chariots and children was far from the desire of even so warlike a people as the green martians during our period of inactivity tars tarkas had instructed me in many of the customs and arts of war familiar to the tharks including lessons in riding and guiding the great beasts which bore the warriors these creatures which are known as thoats are as dangerous and vicious as their masters, but when once subdued are sufficiently tractable for the purposes of the green marshals. Two of these animals had fallen to me from the warriors whose metal I wore, and in a short time I could handle them quite as well as the native warriors. The method was not at all complicated. If the thoats did not respond with sufficient celerity to the telepathic instructions of their riders, they were dealt a terrific blow between the ears with the butt of a pistol, and if they showed fight, this treatment was continued until the brutes either were subdued or had unseated their riders. In the latter case it became a life-and-death struggle between the man and the beast. If the former were quick enough with his pistol, he might live to ride again, though upon some other beast. If not, his torn and mangled body was gathered up by his women and burned in accordance with Tharkian custom. My experience with Wula determined me to attempt the experiment of kindness in my treatment of my thoats. First, I taught them that they could not unseat me, and even wrapped them sharply between the ears to impress upon them my authority and mastery. Then, by degrees, I won their confidence in much the same manner as I had adopted countless times with my many mundane mounts. I was ever a good hand with animals, and by inclination, as well as because it brought more lasting and satisfactory results, I was always kind and humane in my dealings with the lower orders. I could take a human life, if necessary, with far less compunction than that of a poor, unreasoning, irresponsible brute. In the course of a few days, my thoats were the wonder of the entire community. They would follow me like dogs, rubbing their great snouts against my body in awkward evidence of affection, and respond to my every command with an alacrity and docility which caused the Martian warriors to ascribe to me the possession of some earthly power unknown on Mars. "'How have you bewitched them?' asked Tars Tarkas one afternoon, when he had seen me run my arm far between the great jaws of one of my thoats, which had wedged a piece of stone between two of his teeth while feeding upon the moss-like vegetation within our courtyard. "'By kindness,' I replied. "'You see, Tars Tarkas, the softer sentiments have their value even to a warrior. In the height of battle as well as upon the march, I know that my thoats will obey my every command.' and therefore my fighting efficiency is enhanced, and I am a better warrior for the reason that I am a kind master. Your other warriors would find it to the advantage of themselves, as well as of the community, to adopt my methods in this respect. 
only a few days since, you yourself told me that these great brutes, by the uncertainty of their tempers, often were the means of turning victory into defeat, since at a crucial moment they might elect to unseat and rend their riders. Show me how you accomplish these results, was Tars Tarkas, only rejoinder. And so I explained, as carefully as I could, the entire method of training I had adopted with my beasts, and later he had me repeat it before Lorquas Tomel and the assembled warriors. That moment marked the beginning of a new existence for the poor Thotes, and before I left the community of Lorquas Tomel I had the satisfaction of observing a regiment of as tractable and docile mounts as one might care to see. The effect on the precision and celerity of the military movements was so remarkable that Lorquas Tomal presented me with a massive anklet of gold from his own leg, as a sign of his appreciation of my service to the horde. On the seventh day following the battle with the aircraft, we again took up the march toward Thark, all probability of another attack being deemed remote by Lorquas Tomal. During the days just preceding our departure, I had seen but little of Dejathoris, as I had been kept very busy by Tars Tarkas with my lessons in the art of Martian warfare, as well as in the training of my thoats. The few times I had visited her quarters, she had been absent, walking upon the streets with Sola, or investigating the buildings in the near vicinity of the plaza. I had warned them against venturing far from the plaza for fear of the great white apes, whose ferocity I was only too well acquainted with. However, since Wula accompanied them on all their excursions, and as Sola was well armed, there was comparatively little cause for fear. On the evening before our departure, I saw them approaching along one of the great avenues which lead into the plaza from the east. I advanced to meet them and telling Sola that I would take the responsibility for Dejathor's safekeeping, I directed her to return to her quarters on some trivial errand. I liked and trusted Sola, but for some reason I desired to be alone with Dejathoris, who represented to me all that I had left behind upon earth in agreeable and congenial companionship. There seemed bonds of mutual interest between us, as powerful as though we had been born under the same roof rather than upon different planets, hurtling through space some forty-eight million miles apart. That she shared my sentiments in this respect I was positive, for on my approach the look of pitiful hopelessness left her sweet countenance to be replaced by a smile of joyful welcome, as she placed her little right hand upon my left shoulder in true Red Martian salute. Sarkoja told Sola that you had become a true Thark, she said, and that I would now see no more of you than any of the other warriors. Sarkoja is a liar of the first magnitude, I replied, notwithstanding the proud claim of the Tharks to absolute verity. Dejathoris laughed. I knew that even though you became a member of the community, you would not cease to be my friend. A warrior may change his mettle, but not his heart as the saying is upon Barsoom. I think they have been trying to keep us apart, she continued, for whenever you have been off duty, one of the older women of Tars Tarkas retinue has always arranged to trump up some excuse to get Sola and me out of sight. 
They have had me down in the pits below the buildings, helping them mix their awful radium powder and make their terrible projectiles. You know that these have to be manufactured by artificial light, as exposure to sunlight always results in an explosion. You have noticed that their bullets explode when they strike an object? Well, the opaque outer coating is broken by the impact, exposing a glass cylinder almost solid, in the forward end of which is a minute particle of radium powder. The moment the sunlight, even though diffused, strikes this powder, it explodes with a violence which nothing can withstand. If you ever witness a night battle, you will note the absence of these explosions, while the morning following the battle will be filled at sunrise with the sharp detonations of exploding missiles fired the preceding night. As a rule, however, non-exploding projectiles are used at night. Note. I have used the word radium in describing this powder because, in the light of recent discoveries on Earth, I believe it to be a mixture of which radium is the base. In Captain Carter's manuscript it is mentioned always by the name used in the written language of helium, and is spelled in hieroglyphics, which it would be difficult and useless to reproduce. Return to text. While I was much interested in Dejothora's explanation of this wonderful adjunct to Martian warfare, I was more concerned by the immediate problem of their treatment of her. That they were keeping her away from me was not a matter for surprise, but that they should subject her to dangerous and arduous labor filled me with rage. Have they ever subjected you to cruelty and ignominy, Dejothoris? I asked, feeling the hot blood of my fighting ancestors leap in my veins as I awaited her reply. Only in little ways, John Carter, she answered. Nothing that can harm me outside my pride. They know that I am the daughter of ten thousand Jeddaks, that I trace my ancestry straight back without a break to the builder of the first great waterway, and they who do not even know their own mothers are jealous of me. At heart they hate their horrid fates, and so wreak their poor spite on me, who stand for everything they have not, and for all they most crave and never can attain. Let us pity them, my chieftain, for even though we die at their hands, we can afford them pity, since we are greater than they, and they know it. Had I known the significance of those words, my chieftain, as applied by a red Martian woman to a man, I should have had the surprise of my life. But I did not know at that time, nor for many months thereafter. Yes, I still had much to learn upon Barsoom. I presume it is the better part of wisdom that we bow to our fate with as good grace as possible, Dejothoris. But I hope nevertheless that I may be present the next time that any Martian, green, red, pink, or violet, has the temerity to even so much as frown on you, my princess. Deja Thoris caught her breath at my last words, and gazed upon me with dilated eyes and quickening breath, and then, with an odd little laugh which brought roguish dimples to the corners of her mouth, she shook her head and cried, What a child! A great warrior, and yet a stumbling little child! What have I done now? I asked in sore perplexity. 
Some day you shall know, John Carter, if we live, but I may not tell you. And I, the daughter of Moors Kajak, son of Tardos Moors, have listened without anger, she soliloquized in conclusion. Then she broke out again in one of her gay, happy, laughing moods, joking with me on my prowess as a Thark warrior, as contrasted with my soft heart and natural kindliness. I presume that should you accidentally wound an enemy, you would take him home and nurse him back to health, she laughed. That is precisely what we do on earth, I answered, at least among civilized men. This made her laugh again. She could not understand it for with all her tenderness and womanly sweetness she was still a Martian, and to a Martian the only good enemy is a dead enemy, for every dead foeman means so much more to divide between those who live. I was very curious to know what I had said or done to cause her so much perturbation a moment before, and so I continued to importune her to enlighten me. No! she exclaimed it is enough that you have said it and that i have listened and when you learn john carter and if i be dead as likely i shall be ere the further moon has circled barsoom another twelve times remember that i listened and that i smiled it was all greek to me but the more i begged her to explain the more positive became her denials of my request and so in very hopelessness I desisted. Day had now given way to night, and as we wandered along the great avenue, lighted by the two moons of Barsoom, and with earth looking down upon us, out of her luminous green eye, it seemed that we were alone in the universe, and I at least was content that it should be so. The chill of the Martian night was upon us, and removing my silks, I threw them across the shoulders of Deja Thoris. As my arm rested for an instant upon her, I felt a thrill pass through every fibre of my being, such as contact with no other mortal had ever produced, and it seemed to me that she had leaned slightly toward me, but of that I was not sure. Only I knew that as my arm rested there across her shoulders, longer than the act of adjusting the silk required, she did not draw away, nor did she speak. And so, in silence, we walked the surface of a dying world, and in the breast of one of us, at least, had been born that which is ever oldest, yet ever new. I loved Dejah Thoris. The touch of my arm upon her naked shoulder had spoken to me in words I could not mistake and I knew that I had loved her since the first moment that my eyes had met hers, that first time in the plaza of the dead city of Korad. End of chapter 13